So today, um, like I said in the prayer, I'll be talking about basically the life of a Christian. That's kind of the general theme of the passage. But if y'all would turn with me to First uh, Peter 2, 1 through 12, and we'll go ahead and start out by reading it together. So it says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of any kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God, and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, the stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in this world, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, that they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So, Basically, the whole passage, it can be summed up in one very broad theme, the life of a Christian, but it covers three, three different areas, three different aspects of the life of a Christian. The first, and that's covered in verses 1 through 3, is the sanctification process, the personal life of a Christian. Uh, second, it covers the community of Christianity, what it means to have relationships with other Christians. Um, and this is covered in verses 4 through 10. And the last is being a good witness, which verses 11 and 12, the last two verses of the passage covers. And that's basically the relationship of Christians to the world. So uh, I'd like to start out with the first theme, and as the personal life of a Christian. So in verse 1, and I'll go ahead and read it again. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of any kind. So it was saw five different... Or, yeah, five different things um, that a Christian should rid themselves of. And this is the process of sanctification that every believer must undergo. Um, not only is this sinful, but it's also very harmful to your witness, which you can see will tie into later on into the last two verses when it's talking about um, how Christians should relate to the world. But first it starts out with malice. So what malice is, is it can be very generally applied to any type of sin, but it can also be um, harbored within someone, like towards someone. Someone can harbor malice towards someone, resentment or anger. Um, and it's, yeah, it's not necessarily confined to actions. It's ill will within yourself. Um, and this is contrary to the message of the gospel because the message of the gospel is forgiveness. So in the case of harboring 
malice towards someone that's contrary to what the gospel is all about. So obviously that can taint your witness with that. Um, deceit is the next one that it mentions. And deceit, uh, lying is a terrible sin. It can ruin your witness because it ruins your credibility. It tarnishes it. And also, one uh, sermon that I heard earlier was that um, God is the truth. In John fourteen six, it says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So if God is the truth, then what you're doing is you're putting away the truth to tell your own selfish lies. And it's basically the opposite of what God stands for. So in that way, it's also a very harmful sin, not only to yourself, but to your witness as well. Um, Yeah, if you're dishonest, how can people trust you with the gospel? If you're trying to tell them about Jesus and what he's done for you, why are they supposed to trust you if they can't trust you with anything else? So it's very important to be truthful and to be honest. Uh, hypocrisy is another thing that's harmful to the gospel and harmful to your witness. Um, Matthew 7, 5, Jesus talks about removing the plank from your own eye before you remove the speck um, from your brother's eye. And it's a very important thing to really realize within yourself your own sins and to confess to those, um, especially when pointing them out in other people. You must first admit your own guilt um, if you do suffer with that. So hypocrisy is something that I've seen turn many people away from the church. Um, I know people who it's turned them away from the church, and it's terrible that some Christians are hypocrites. And we're, I mean, a lot of people, a lot of Christians do struggle with hypocrisy. Um, And there are obviously some, uh, some ministers, unfortunately, that struggle with embezzlement and other things, and it's just a terrible thing to see that. Um especially among people who claim to be believers. Um, But unfortunately, it turns a lot of people off from the church. Envy is another sin that it mentions. And this is interesting because if you're constantly wanting other things, then how are people supposed to believe that you can find satisfaction in God? And I think that's a very important thing to realize because if you're constantly like, well, you know, I wish I had that car that so-and-so has, or I wish I had that house, I really envy that, you know, how are they supposed to believe that you've truly found satisfaction if you're constantly wanting material things? You're never going to find satisfaction in material things. Um, so you can only find it in God. And in front of people who are non-believers especially, we must be careful not to be envious of other things. And all these things, um, you know, when I'm talking about your image in front of non-believers, Certainly, we should be concerned with the image of God um, you know, rep- that we represent individually uh, to non-believers. But we should also strive to sanctify ourselves from these things as well. And that's the most important part is that we have to sanctify ourselves from these things. Um, and lastly, it talks about slander in verse 1. And that's basically just harmful talk uh, about or directed to someone else. And it can be anything from gossip to accusations. And as Christians, we should really set a precedent of talking, uh, you know, talking well about other people, about not speaking poorly about other people. Um, it's just not a good idea to be caught up in all that. So, uh, anyways, in verse one, it basically it talks about the sanctification process of a believer. So, moving on to verses two through three, it says, "Like newborn babies crave sp- pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation." Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. So the first thing uh, I'd like to ask is, what is spiritual milk? 
So I was trying to figure this out, and I don't know, I was having a little bit of trouble with this last night, and I consulted uh, Greg and Chad about this. But uh, I don't know, originally I thought um, that I was referring to Hebrews 5, 12 through 14. Um, so I'll go ahead and read that for you. But it says, in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. Righteousness, But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good for evil. So it's not clear if Peter's audience is um, made up of new Christians, of people who are new to the faith. And that's one thing I was thinking of when I first saw that. So maybe these people are very new to the faith. And even in verse 3, it talks about, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good, kind of experiencing the first experience of salvation. Um, however, uh, I don't think it's wise to just assume that's what it's talking about. Um, I think the big message of uh, verses 2 through 3 is that you must grow up. You must mature as a believer. And that's the second part of a Christian's life, is that you must constantly seek out maturity. Whether you're new to the faith or old to the faith, there's always new things to learn. Even the most well-versed biblical scholars who are Christians in today's time still learn new things about God every time they open up the Bible. And I think that's a very incredible thing, that um, the fact that we're constantly drawing nearer and closer to God in our own spiritual walks. So that should be one thing that's very consistent among all believers, is the fact that you're growing, that you're actually maturing in your faith. Um, of course, there will be times where there will be wolves where you won't grow or where, um, where you may uh, feel like you're not making any progress. But um, you know, overall, the big trend is that you should be growing closer to God over time. Um, another thing, verse 2, the spiritual milk could be referring to, it could be an allegory that could show how we should crave for Scripture and crave for growth and nourishment. Um, and obviously, newborns, they really crave milk. Um, so I think that's another takeaway from it is that like the way that newborns really crave milk, we should really crave scripture and growth in Christ. So uh, in verse 3 it says, Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is kind of a reference to Psalm 34 8. It's not a direct reference, but I'd like to read it. Um, so Psalm 34 8, it says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And refuge is a common verse, or a common reference, rather, um, that you'll see in verses uh, 6 through 8, kind of the verses that draws back, the different references that draws back to in the Old Testament. They all speak of Christ being a refuge and being a stone. Um, so I'd like to kind of point out that idea before I get to that passage. But anyways, um, I think taste is a really good a way to describe experiencing salvation because it means that you have to draw near to it. You have to be intimately close with God in order to taste that He is good. Um, and I think that's a very important concept to realize that you can't just see, that you can't observe from afar, that you must draw near to God and taste for yourself. So I think it's a really cool uh, allegory that Peter makes in that passage. Anyways, moving on to verses 4 through 5. And I guess that kind of closes up the personal life of a Christian. Uh, basically, that we should be craving Scripture and growth, that we should be constantly growing, and that we should be sanctifying ourselves from sins 
that can both harm our witness and harm ourselves as well. So uh, verses 4 through 5, opening up into the communal life of a Christian, uh, as far as the Christian community goes. Uh, Verses 4 through 5, it says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So it starts out by saying that Christ is the living stone, and this will be affirmed in um, the reference in verse 6 that makes Isaiah 28, 16. But Christ is the living stone. Basically that he's firm, that he's solid, that he's something that we can rely on and trust in. So God is building us onto him, and Christ being the foundation, the cornerstone. And normally the cornerstone, um, in biblical times, it would be one large stone, something that would hold everything together, the house that was built on top of it. Um, But another thing that God is building into us is the fact that we are becoming like Christ. We're becoming living stones ourselves. And I think it's a very important concept to realize because in talking about the community of Christianity, uh, a stone can't reject another stone. It shouldn't reject another stone in the building. Like, I was thinking, I guess, um, you know, a square rock in a circular hole, you know, with the wall rejecting that stone, you can't put it in. Um, It's not going to be structurally sound if another stone rejects another stone. So likewise, we should really seek to resolve any conflicts or any, um, you know, church drama that uh, really exists because it's, it's not beneficial to the community of Christianity. It's not beneficial to the building that God is building out with the body of believers. So uh, another thing about this passage is that it says that um, we are building, being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices. So if you look in the Old Testament, what you needed to draw close to God was a spiritual house, a priest, and sacrifices. So I think Peter in this passage is also referring to the fact that Christ is sufficient for us. Um, The New Testament, the gospel message is sufficient for us. We don't need the priesthood uh, or Levitical priests. We are priests ourselves. We've been granted and been adopted into the royal priesthood. And I think it's so wonderful that we've been, we sinners have been adopted into the royal priesthood. I think it's an incredible thing to realize. Um, But it's also, this also kind of may point to the fact that Peter's audience may be Christian Jews, uh, new Christian Jews. Um, it's been thought about with biblical scholars, but, um, but anyways, I think this just really details the sufficiency of Christ. Um, and with the spiritual sacrifices, with that part, uh, Romans 12, 1 through 2, it talks about offering your bodies as living sacrifices. And I think what this means is uh, Jesus in the gospel, he says that you need to d- take up your cross daily and follow him. Um, and that's your spiritual act of, act of worship. And I believe that that's the sacrifice, the spiritual sacrifice that is required of us here. So moving on to verses 6 through 8, it says, uh, for in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. That's Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen. That's basically just affirming that Christ is a living stone um, for the purpose of his argument, saying that Christ is a living stone. 
Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. So in verse 7, that first reference is um, to Psalm 118.22, and basically the whole context of it is the fact that many will try and build their own houses without Christ being the cornerstone. So I'm sure y'all are all familiar with the parable of the man building his house on solid rock and the man who's building it on sand. There will be many people who building, build their houses on sand. And unfortunately, um, that will just wash away. It will wash away everything, everything that they've ever built up for themselves. And that can, the sand can be anything in this world, anything that's not permanent, something that's not going to last. Because Christ is the only thing that's eternal. He's the only thing that's going to stand firm amidst the trials of this life. So if you build it up on money, you can easily lose it. If you build it up on, um, you know, on well-being, well-being, you can easily lose that. So it's very important to build your life on Christ uh, because he's the solid rock. He's the only thing that's going to stand in this crazy world. Um, and another thing about these, these old verses, uh, Psalm 118, it talks about refuge. Uh, so it's something you can trust. It's something that's reliable. And that's something that we need to believe about Christ, the fact that he's reliable, that he's not going to be wishy-washy or anything like that. That's something that's going to stand firm through the ages. Uh, verse 8, which is the second, uh, or rather the third, uh, verse 6 through 8, uh, reference to Old Testament passage. It comes from Isaiah eight fourteen, And it talks about a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And basically what this is referring to is that people are going to be offended by the gospel. People don't like to be told the fact that they are sinful, that they are fallen, and that they can't help themselves, that they can't do anything other than believe in Christ. Um, It's a very offensive message, but it's one that must be recognized in order for people to have judgment passed over from them. Um, And by that, the fact that you know, this is truth. This is something that they can't avoid. Um, they must acknowledge it as truth. Because if they don't, judgment will be held towards them. And um, that's in that way, it's a rock that makes them fall. Um, so, but it's also, it mentions in the previous two verses, it mentions it as a refuge, as something we can trust. So it's important to realize that. So moving on, uh, verses 9 through 10. It says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So in verses 6 or 8, it was kind of talking about the foundation of the church, Christ being the foundation, the cornerstone. Now it's going back to the whole building, the whole structure, the fact that we are one nation, we are a holy priesthood, a family, um, and a people belonging to God. I think it's an important thing to realize that as one nation, there, should be, there shouldn't be any distinction between us. There shouldn't be any dissension uh, between believers. We should all seek for unity and for community among our, uh, ourselves, among each other. Um, and not only should we seek that, but we should also seek to uplift one another and encourage one another in Christ. <clears throat> um, I love, once again, how it talks about a royal priesthood. And I just think it's so wonderful that us sinners can become a royal priesthood. Someone who's so fallen and so 
uh, dirty can be cleaned and made pure. Uh, I just think it's wonderful. Um, another thing, I, in one of the translations, uh, it was another, a different NIV, but it said that we're God's special possession. And I love that phrase, that we're God's special possession, that we are a people belonging to God. Um, because God owns us twice over. Not only did he create us and build us, but he also bought us with his own blood. And it's just it shows how incredibly sufficient God's love is for us. The fact that he owns us twice over, I just think that's incredible. And um, I just think that it really details God's love for us. So anyways, I guess in summary uh, of those 4 through 10, verses 4 through 10, we as Christians should seek unity among believers. We should put Christ as a cornerstone, the foundation of our lives, not only our personal lives, but our communal as well. Um, and we should really seek that the church be built upon it. So, um, moving on to the last two verses. And there's a lot to draw from these last two verses. Uh, the verses 11 through 12, it says, Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. <clears throat> so, we are foreigners and exiles to this world. We're strangers. Uh, and that is because we serve something else. Everything else in this world is self-serving or some sort of false idol, but we serve something true, something firm and solid, and that's Christ. Um, scripture says that like, you know, people can do good things, they can try and do good things, but still the motive isn't there because um, they need to have the motive of glorifying Christ, of bringing glory to Christ. And that's what sets us apart from the world, and that's what should set us apart from the world. In John 15, it says that the world will hate you because of me. And um, I think it's because we're different, because we're foreigners in the world's eye. Um, but likewise, we should also seek to be relatable. And that's not in the way of sin. We should not uh, partake in the sin of the world. We should not condone it in any way. However, we should seek out relationships with non-believers, friendships with non-believers. Obviously, have our core group, the, uh, you know, the church, the body. But we should also be involved in relational ministry with non-believers. So, um, you know, we should seek to be relatable, but we need to be different in the way that we should not conform to the ways of this world. Romans 12, 1 through 2, once again, it says that rather than, uh, rather than being conformed to the ways of this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And uh, I think it's a very important verse to realize. Um, it's one that plays into my life constantly, uh, just the fact that we should not conform to the ways of this world. We should be different. Um, and the reason why we should be different is that non-believers should look at us and see that, oh, you're not like everyone else. There are other people who are constantly worried about what will happen after they die, or you know, they're constantly concerned with their own self-image or things that they're doing. Um, instead, you're concerned about something else. You're just concerned with your relationship with God. And that's it. You're, you know, you're firm. You're solid. You're confident in that. And I think that should be a witness to non-believers: the fact that we are set apart. We are holy. We are different. Um, and verses uh, eleven through twelve in First Peter two, they cover that a lot, especially verse twelve. Um, I'll get to that in a second. 
But, uh, yeah, it's very important to be relatable. It is very important, and we should seek out those relationships, not avoid them, but in the same way we should not condone sin in a communal aspect. So going on in the relationship with the world, a Christian's relationship with the world, uh, this passage kind of reminded me of first or of Titus rather uh, two seven through eight. So Titus two seven through eight it says, and everything set them an example by doing what is good, and your teaching show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may not be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. And it also reminds me of uh, Matthew five fourteen or Matthew 5, 16, rather. It says, um, You're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So these two verses, uh, or two passages, rather, tie into verse 12 really well um, in First Peter 2. And it basically says that non-believers should have to struggle to find bad things to say about us. Um, more importantly, bad things to say about God. But we know that as Christians, we are representing God. In Galatians 2, it says, I've been crucified by Christ, or with Christ. And it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. So we know that we are ambassadors to the world of Christ. And as ambassadors, you, know, you must represent uh, what you're representing very well. Um, if you think about like in a uh, political mindset, ambassadors to other countries, they must represent their own country in a foreign country. So likewise, we are ambassadors because we belong to God. We're part of a holy nation that God has called us towards. So we must represent that holy nation, um, God being the foundation of it. We must represent him well. One thing that I love about uh, my fraternity, which is BYX, is the fact that we try and maintain a good behavior uh, among people uh, in the Greek community and at UGA. And uh, I think that BYX does that very well, and there are a lot of BYX uh, people here. Uh, BYX has been closely involved with this church. Um, But we don't do that. We don't maintain a good behavior for the sake of the fraternity. I know there are many things that could make our fraternity look better uh, in the world's view that would not make Christ look good. Um, So I think it's very cool that we do it for the sake of Christ's name. We try to uphold his name and uphold the fact that Christians should obey and be obedient to Scripture. But likewise... um, I think that us as Christians should really seek that in our own communities and uh, people that we associate on a daily basis. Um, We should not be concerned with our own self-image, with the way that we look to other people. We shouldn't be concerned about people saying like, oh, he's he's a very good person or whatever. Rather, we should be concerned with what they say about God, what they say about believers in general. Because I know there are many people who have been turned off from the church because of Christians and Christians that, um, you know, that sin in public eye or make a bad decision in the public eye. Um, so in a fallen world, we are all that Christ, have, uh, Christ has to really show uh, how to live like Christ, basically, that we are ambassadors, that we represent what it means to be a Christian to this world. There's nothing else. Scripture, it details it. 
there's no other physical example than us. And we um, should really hold that in our minds and uh, a daily ba- on a daily basis when we associate with people outside the church. So that kind of sums up um, the whole life of a Christian. Basically, as a Christian, we must constantly be concerned with these three things, our own personal walk, and that includes sanctification, that includes prayer, that includes reading scripture, that includes our intimate relationship with God. We should constantly be concerned with those things. Uh, another thing, we should constantly be concerned with our relationship with other believers. We should really seek out, seek out to stamp out any conflicts or anything in a way that is appropriate. Um, and also, our friendships with the world. We should not conform to the ways of this world or condone sin, but we should really seek out friendships with people who do not know Jesus and use those friendships to lead them to Christ. Paul, um, in one of his letters, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. And I think that is the best way that we can witness to non-believers is basically by being a good example to those who don't know what it means to be like Christ. So that's all I have today. Uh, thank you for listening, and I hope that it's applicable to your own lives. And um, yeah, I'd like to close this out in prayer before we go into our open time. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for allowing me to share your message and uh, share your scripture. Lord, I thank you for the fact that we have a solid rock to stand on, that we have something firm that won't wash away. Um, even it doesn't even matter how crazy the world gets, Lord, you're going to stand firm through the ages. And um, where I'm so thankful that we can stand confident in that, that we can build our lives around that and be confident of the fact that you are true and that what you have promised will come to fruition. Lord, I pray that each and every one of these individual aspects of uh, a Christian life would be something that we would really strive to uphold in our own personal lives uh, throughout the rest of this week and uh, the rest of our lives too, Lord. Um, I pray it would just be something that's constantly on our minds and constantly something that we're striving to better ourselves in. Um, Lord, I'm so thankful that we have a personal and intimate relationship with you. The fact that we can share that, that we can constantly grow in that. Um, Lord, I'm also so thankful that Uh, We have a community, a Christian community to associate with that you've blessed us with. Lord, I pray that we would take full advantage of that. And Lord, I'm thankful for the fact that we can be a witness, that we can be something that represents you. And Lord, I pray that we would do that uh, in the most worthy manner of the gospel. Um, Lord, so I pray that as we go throughout the rest of this week, that we would just really uh, seek those things out and um, seek to be a Christian uh, that grows constantly um, in all these different aspects, Lord. Lord, as we go into open time, I pray that you would uh, just please bless us and uh, anoint the words of the believers. And uh, Father, I pray that you would um, just help us to share whatever you have placed on our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.